Welcome to the Fringe Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Michael J. Johnson. We're listening to the song Pear Aspera by my guest today, Max Boris. This song is on his upcoming EP called Primal Electric, which will be out on November 6th on all the major streaming services as well as Bandcamp. I've known Max for a while. He was one of my students. He's a very talented guitarist and songwriter and producer. And we definitely get into his experiences in my class as well as other classes in this discussion. So in order to find Max's work on the internet, you should understand that his last name is spelled B-O-R-A-S. His website is www.maxborisguitar.com, and that's all one word. His Instagram is instagram.com maxborisguitar. Facebook is also facebook.com maxborisguitar. After our interview is over, you'll also hear a little bit of another song off of the EP called Frank Scored a Video Game. So be sure to check out his EP when it comes out on the 6th. And uh, if you haven't already, please follow him on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Also, if you are a Spotify user or a Bandcamp user, it'd be great to follow him there too. So of course, due to COVID, this is my first interview that's fully remote. So the sound quality of the voices is not up to my usual standards, and I apologize for that in advance, but I think we did a pretty good job. So without further ado, here's my interview with Max Boris. Let's go back. Mm -hmm. All right. And I just kind of want you to talk about growing up and how you got into music and stuff like that. Sure. Well, I come from sort of a musical family, so my dad is a uh, semi-professional drummer. Uh, He's played in numerous bands. And around the time I was born, there was a band he was playing in. Well, actually, he started playing in the band a little after I was born um, with people he knew in Manhattan uh, because he worked in Manhattan for like 20 some odd years. He, you know, and he's been a drummer his whole life. So I was hearing, and he and my mom are both avid music fans, so I was hearing music all the time growing up. The first music I heard was a combination of classic rock, classic metal, and 90s grunge, because I'm born in 1993, so albums like so albums like Super Unknown, uh, Nirvana, all that kind of stuff, early Chili Peppers, well not early Chili Peppers, but 90s Chili Peppers, that was, you know, and that was when radio rock was still huge. So like I was hearing that all the time coming from all different coming from all different directions. Around the time I was like four or five years old, my dad was playing a lot with the band he had uh, in Manhattan quite a bit. They were gigging like once or twice a month. And we lived in Pennsylvania at the time. So he had like a two hour commute one way to work. So he would go to, so he'd, he'd be at work and then like, he'd be rehearsing once or twice a week. And then he'd be gigging twice a month with these guys. And they played a lot at a club in the, uh, in the village called the elbow room, which isn't there anymore. It was on a uh, bleaker street. And one of the things that club would do was they had three mounted cameras in the venue. And if you paid them, they would film your show and 
the and they would uh, sync the soundboard recording up to the video, and they'd throw that on a VHS, and then they would give that to you at the end of the night. So I was too young to go to these shows, obviously. So I would always be excited the next day to watch that, to watch those tapes. So at a young age, I'm seeing how I'm learning what stage presence is. I'm learning about, I'm just, I'm hearing a lot of different styles of music. Not only that, the only album they ever made was recorded in our basement. The whole band came, traveled all the way from, uh, traveled all the way from New York, uh, Long Island, Staten Island, Brooklyn, wherever they were living, uh, all the way to our home in you know, one of the suburbs of Philadelphia to record in our basement. And that was my first time ever seeing like basically how stuff is recorded. I was seeing a drum kit mic'd up. I was seeing amplifiers mic'd up. Like, you know, I'm seeing like these PV banded amplifiers in person. And when you're five years old and you're seeing the PV logo in person, it's just like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> when you see a Fender Stratocaster there in person, it's just like, oh my God, you see little stomp boxes everywhere. It, it just looks super cool. Even the, even the, the, like the Tascam, whatever it was they were using to record on, uh, it, I was just like, oh my God, this is, you know, it, it's similar to the same rush I get when I still see, when I see like a giant mixing console to this day, you know, cause we all love gear, right? Yeah. So basically it's not like I made a conscious decision to be a musician, uh, cause my grandfather's a piano player as well. Uh, my other, my, my, my uncles play as well. One, one other uncle of mine is a drummer. Another uncle used to be a guitar player. So it's all over the place. My brother plays drums. Uh, so it wasn't like I decided, huh, I'm going to be a musician. It was just a given. I was going to do it. Um, and I picked guitar kind of randomly, honestly. But when I got my first guitar at age six for my sixth birthday, I just took to it like a duck to water. I, I mean... Not that, not that I was playing it perfectly I, right off the bat. What I mean was I loved it so much that I was just constantly, you know, just strumming the open strings, just trying to make a sound out of it. Uh, and I loved it. And so immediately started taking lessons. And I, I took lessons from so many different people when I was... Uh, when I was a kid, I, um, I started studying classical guitar as well at the age of, I want to say 11 or 12. Uh, and that was when I learned how to read music. That was when I started learning, uh, the basics of like music theory and all that kind of stuff. And that was when I started learning what scales were and modes. And, and it was by doing that, that I started to learn where stuff is on the fretboard understood better how to like actually like take a solo and and then like i it was a lot easier for me to pick stuff off out of record off of records at that point i mean i was already picking music off of records before that but uh, by ear but when i started learning how to read music and i started like learning scales and all that stuff i was able to see a lot better where stuff was therefore it was easier for me to grab stuff i heard on off, off of records a lot more quickly and then, of course, learning how to read made stuff easier, too, obviously. So I, I played in a few bunch of different after-school programs. I was in School of Rock briefly. I was in a number of different bands. I actually played bass uh, in one of my dad's bands for a period of time. And that was how I started gigging professionally. I was 15 or 16 years old playing in his band in clubs in Manhattan. And 
that was my first professional gig. I, like, I even got paid that night. Um, yeah, playing bass at a club uh, with him in the in the city, and again, I've I've been I was I had a number of different bands with friends and what have you. I was playing in his band, and let me think. Yeah, in and out of so many different bands, and I always you know, and I've been writing music for a period of time now, and I came to Berkeley in 2015, and I, I kind of jumped around a bit with my major. I was doing CWP for a period of time, and then I switched to pro music, but still had CWP as one of my concentrates. And then I ha- and then and I added performance and e and uh, MP and E onto it as well. So I had those three concentrates, and um, yeah, and and I met you. I think it was my third semester. Yeah, when third. You were sem- in my jazz ensemble. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was in your jazz ensemble in my third semester, and that was how we met. And I remember, like, I was doing that because, like, you know, I I didn't have a background in jazz. So I was kind of like, all right, let me throw myself in and really just try and learn this. Because because I, I didn't even get into, like, the kind of bands that really uh, have influenced me. I've always, you know, The Who is my favorite band. That's the That's the band that really... Watching them, I decided, yes, I'm, I'm, I, I really, this is the kind of music I want to do. Cause like I said, I didn't just, de- I didn't decide to be a musician. It was a given, but it was watching them that I, that I was able to formulate what I wanted to sound like, which is interesting because my music's a lot more different now. So I, I started off listening to a lot of classic rock and a lot of classic metal but it wasn't just that. There's a lot of different artists I'm into. I, you know, I love you know Led Zeppelin, The Who, and Aerosmith, and all that stuff. But I also love bands like The Police, Duran Duran, Alan Holsworth, Jeff Beck. Who else do I have up here? Pink Floyd. Another huge, huge influence of mine is Frank Zappa. Frank is one of my absolute heroes, and I'm very fortunate to know his son Dweezil, who is a very, very very nice guy and an unbelievable musician. I actually had the privilege to uh, perform with him in his band a couple of times. Uh, there's videos of that on YouTube. Um, and I'm very and I'm very very into the contemporary scene of uh, rock and metal and uh, prog and all that. Um, and around the time Tower Records went out of business, my folks went on a huge shopping spree and bought. God knows how many CDs uh, and box sets. And one of the CDs they got, this is circa 2005 or six, whenever Tower Records went out of business. Um, one of the CDs my mom got was the Yes 35th Anniversary uh, uh, CD set. And, you know, that was before I could drive. So whenever I have to go and I have to go with them somewhere, that's the CD that's in the car. So that was my introduction to progressive music, was hearing just classic yes. And I, I didn't know what to call it, but I know that I just, I loved what they were doing. I loved, in fact, I didn't even recognize, here, this is a true testament, I think, to yes's writing. At that age, I didn't realize that the songs were nine minutes plus sometimes, because the music just grabs you and takes you on this journey and you're just following what's happening. The music is so well written, so well arranged and so well mixed. 
and so well produced, you know, which obviously thanks to Roy Thomas Baker for that one. And obviously all the guys in that band and all the people that have been in that band are killer players and killer musicians. So, and I loved the journey that it would take you on and all the different textures and how like the music is arranged kind of like how, a, how a, a, a symphony orchestra is arranged. You know, it's not just guitar, bass, drums, keys, and vocals. It's like there's different movements, there's different parts, things come in and out. And so, and that was my introduction to progressive music was hearing Yes. And then I got into King Crimson, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and all the classic prog artists and kept following all the different ones up to today. And so I'm, and so, you know, and as I, and as I got older, I started listening to the more contemporary artists such as Pliny, Animals as Leaders, Periphery, um, uh, who else? In, uh, did I say Intervals? Um, yeah, Intervals. And, um, and all the contemporary metal artists as well, and a lot of the contemporary rock artists. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm like a sponge. I just like to take in everything. And, and so now the music that I'm writing is, prim is, is instrumental now. And it has elements of all these different artists. Like, like people have told me when, they, when they've heard my music that they've heard... They do hear those classic artists in there, but they also hear contemporary artists. Like I've heard people tell me that they hear elements of Yes or Frank Zappa in my music, but they also hear elements of, say, uh, you know, uh, Pliny or somebody like that in there too. So it, it it's it, I pull in as much stuff as I possibly can, but it's all the sound I'm hearing in my head just filtered through my influences as what ha as what happens when you're when you're a writer yeah what kind of music did your dad's band play so their band it was it was it was it was a it was a rock band um they all grew up on like classic rock and classic blues um and my dad my dad grew up on the music that i started listening to like i was mentioning classic rock my dad's also into classic prog too my dad uh, my dad and my uncle, his brother, introduced me to Frank Zappa, um, his music, and uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and all that stuff, and Rush, obviously, and um, and of course, sad to say, the late great Eddie Van Halen. Um, in fact, you know, since we did just lose Eddie, I do have to say, you know, it reminded me of when I when I I remember when I first heard Eruption. I I had never heard anything like that before and needless to say that tapping section at that point in time that was the most beautiful piece of music I had ever heard I I, I had no idea what it was but it was just it's it was one of those things where something hits you and you just it's the most amazing thing you've ever heard and I was just blown away by it and and I'm very thankful that I did get to see Eddie live twice, once in 08 and once in 2012, both times with uh, Dave. And yeah, in 2008 was when, um, was when Dave, that was when Dave uh, had reunited with them. And that was at the, uh, the IZOD Center in New Jersey. And then the second time was in 2012 after they had released the last album they put out. 
And that was at uh, Wells Fargo in Philadelphia. And it was, yeah, it was unbelievable. And I remember in 08, uh, he, when Eddie did Eruption, it wasn't just Eruption. It was a whole like 10 minute extravaganza of things he had arranged together. So you get, you get all the elements of Eruption you're expecting to get, which is, you know, basically the whole song. But then he'll, what he would do is he would insert different uh, other like uh, solo shred pieces he had into there. So you get the beginning of Eruption. And then at one point he went into uh, Spanish Fly. So he starts doing that. Uh, then does another part of Eruption. And then, uh, and then he would start improvising for a bit and just go off and do some stuff. And then he went into Cathedral and did that. And I remember in 08 when I saw that, I, I, I hadn't heard Cathedral yet, but I still have burned into my mind. I can still see it right now. His hand, his right hand doing this. And, and I was just like, I was like, what on earth is he doing? Like, I knew what volume swells were, but I'm like, what's happening here? This is amazing. Then I asked my dad, because he took me to the show uh, afterwards. I'm like, what was he doing with the volume swells? Oh, that's called Cathedral. And so I went back and listened to it. And then when I saw him again in 2012, he did, again, a similar deal with Eruption. And then when I saw it, I was just like, absolute goosebumps. Absolute goosebumps. And it was just, he's a true testament to, if you have a vision, you can make it happen. All you have to do is just do it. Yeah. I would like you to talk about some of the other bands you've been in before the stuff you're doing. So like I mentioned, I was playing in, I was playing in my dad's band for a while. And so that was a lot of blues rock stuff. So when I was playing in there, I was listening to a whole bunch of different things. Um, uh, let's see. I was listening to Jay Giles' band. Um, let's see. There was some James Brown in there. Uh, a, a bunch of Stone stuff. Um, I already knew who Otis Redding was, but there was some Otis. I, there were a couple Otis tunes we played. Uh, the band had originals too, and so uh, we were doing those. Um, uh, we... I don't think we played any Doors tunes, but our singer was very into the Doors, so I was hearing a lot of Doors as well. Um, and that was when I started really learning about... And I have this thing where whenever I first get into a band, I have to learn everything about them. I do my research. I learn who are, the, who are all the people in the band, who played on what records, what is their discography, what are their famous songs, what are they known for, when did they start? I got to know all this crap. So I was playing in that band for a bit, uh, and then a couple bands with some friends at School of Rock, which didn't really go anywhere. And then there was a metal band I was playing in a, at, uh, for a period of time. They were called Rapid Fire. Um, I met them. They're not around anymore. Everybody in that band is off doing their own things now. But uh, I got in touch with that band. And this is an interesting testament to the music industry, how, you know, you never know what things are going to lead to. And that band didn't really lead to anything. However, I met some people in that band that I'm still very good friends with to this day and have done a bunch of stuff with. The teacher I had at School of Rock in New Jersey, my family and I moved to New Jersey in 01. The teacher I had there told me there was a band that was looking for, 
Well, no, he didn't phrase it as a band. Uh, what he had been told was that there was a commercial that was being shot and they needed a guitarist for it. So I got in touch with the people he told me to get in touch with. And I um, learned the music they sent me. And I went in and played with the group. That was the audition. But then I found out that it, it, it wasn't necessarily a commercial. It was really just a band audition, which I was fine with. That was what I wanted to do anyway. Uh, and I played with them for a period of time. I was playing guitar for them. Uh, then uh, I became their bassist. Uh, and then went back to guitar. One of the guys that subbed in that band on guitar at one point, I'm still very good friends with to this day. And he went to Berkeley before I did. And then when I came to Berkeley, he was still going here. And he ended up playing in, in one of the bands I formed in 2014 a few years later. Because when I joined this Rapid Fire band, that was 2008, nine, I want to say. I was in that band for a period of time, got some gigging experience with them. Um, and then I eventually ended up leaving that band because I had a bunch of other stuff going on that I was working on. Then after that, I formed like sort of a, uh, a progressive rock project. I don't know if it was even prog. It was just a weird amalgamation of a whole bunch of different stuff. There was some metal here. There was some rock here. There was some quasi-punk here. There's some acoustic stuff here. It's just a, it was just me going at it saying, all right, I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want here. And so I ended up calling up the singer the guy that sang in that band Rapid Fire, the guy who subbed that one time, who ended up becoming a permanent member of that band for as long as they were, they continued on after I left. Uh, he ended up playing bass for me, and my brother was playing drums in that, and I was playing guitar. And we made a couple of records. Uh, the second one never got released, but we made a couple of records, and I started gigging a lot with uh, them. Um, I was playing... What we was were, that band called again? Uh, that band was called Flathead Sky. Uh, the only record we ever released is still on Spotify, I think. But um, yeah, uh, which was all recorded in my basement and I mixed it and all that. Um, so I was doing that. I was playing with them and we were we were playing all over New Jersey and New York. We were, you know, we were playing we were playing down the shore uh, and. That was how I started to meet a lot of different uh, promoters and uh, and get and start to learn about a lot of different venues. And meanwhile, while I was doing that, I was playing in a cover band on the weekends uh, that did an amalgamation of like 60s and 70s, uh, like top 40 hits, uh, but also like uh, deep cut stuff you wouldn't expect us to do. Like, like, like we, we would do. Like, we would do Billy Joel and stuff like that, but then we would break into, like, Steely Dan and Blood, Sweat, and Tears in the next minute. Uh, and then, yeah, and then go into an Elton John song here. So it was, like, it was kind of all over the place. It, it, it was interesting. At one moment, you're playing You May Be Right. Then you're playing And When I Die. Then you're playing, uh, then you're playing Taking It to the Streets. And then you're playing uh, Kid Charlemagne. So, like... <laughs> It was kind of just jumping all around, you know, top 40. Oh, top 40. Well, nobody plays that song, uh, you know, uh, so that was fun. Um, and so, and it was playing with both of those bands. That was when I started really getting my live chops up. Cause I was playing a lot, like almost every weekend. Uh, sometimes it would be two gigs within a weekend. And that's one of the things I encourage for a number of, for, for so many people, that are starting out, 
playing. It's like you got to get out there and play with. I know we can't do that right now, obviously, but like sans the pandemic, like when it's over and we're able to do this again, play with as many people as you can. Get on stage. Start out playing open mics and then just try and get gigs for yourself. Play with people. Get on stage. And because, as you know, playing in a rehearsal space or even just practicing by yourself is completely different than being on stage in front of an audience with lights on and your amplifier right here, the sound, all these elements go come into play here. And you're not going to learn how to do it unless you actually do it. So, you know, I mean, so once the quarantining and everything else has passed, that's definitely something I encourage for anybody that's trying to figure that out is just, just get on stage however you can. Play with as many people as you can and learn how to listen. Don't just play your part and be inside of it. Listen to what everyone else is playing. Know your part, of course, but then find a way to make it sit with everybody else. And that was, you know, and I remember playing in, and I already knew how to do that. But when I, when I came to Berkeley, but Berkeley obviously reinforced that in so many different ways because I was playing a lot of different styles, you know, you know, uh, and what I was saying before, uh, before was that, you know, I didn't, I didn't listen to a lot of jazz when I was younger. I loved fusion, obviously with Jeff Beck and Alan Holsworth and, you know, snarky puppy and whatever else. But when I came to you, I, I'm, I know I said in that, in that class, I said, well, I don't have a background in jazz, but I do know some, and I just, I'd, I'd like to add this to my arsenal of things to play. Yeah. And then I learned a bunch of standards and learned how to actually learned how to actually solo through them. And, you know, and it's not, you know, when you're playing jazz, it's not like when you learn a rock song where you're learning note for note exactly what the riff is, where this lead line comes in and how you're supposed to articulate it and what how the actual amount of vibrato is that needs to be used and all that stuff. It's, these are the chord changes. This is the melody. Here's how we can do it. And I don't want to say that was a bizarre concept for me because I had already heard about that concept, but actually executing it in real time with other people was, that was, that was the first time I really got to do that. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was a good time. So circa 2014, I'm playing in that band Flathead Sky. I'm gigging with the, with the cover band Radio Flyer. A couple years prior to that was when I got to perform with Dweezil and his band. Uh, I mean, I wasn't a member of that band, but I, I did a couple guest spots with them. And I'll even say, even just doing those two guest spots, being on stage with them for like the three minutes I was, Sorry, five minutes. Boy, did I learn a lot. Yeah. Because the people he has in his band, as you can imagine, are astounding players. I learned so much just playing with them and hanging around with them, too. Being at, uh, I was at Dweezil's camp, Dweezilla, for uh, three summers. Um, and that was how I ended up playing with them. Like, I did a one off uh, show with them, uh, on a pr which was a private. Uh, concert for the campers and then two actual shows with them in New York, which was fun. Um, so, so I do that. Then I, all right, so I come to Berkeley, 
2015, I'm still doing stuff with Flathead Sky, but because I'm in Boston and the going back and forth between Boston and New Jersey is becoming an issue, I'm just like, okay, I think it's time for me to stop, form a new project here. Uh, And I did. I formed a new project, which was called Nuclear Apathy. Um, Went through a number of different lineup changes, but I was writing a whole bunch of music. And it was around this time that I started working. This was the first time I started to work with a producer. Uh, Around the time Flathead Sky was like, wasn't exactly reaching the end, but it was like shortly before that. My brother, um, who is going to be graduating Berkeley soon, uh, he started taking lessons from Chad Saliga, who was the drummer for Breaking Benjamin. Uh, yeah, he was the drummer on their, uh, their, their two biggest records, Phobia and Dear Agony. Um, and we met him through a mutual friend and he took Ethan on as a student before he came to Berkeley and he loved our music and ended up producing us. And Mike Orlando, the guitar player for Adrenaline Mob, um, he knew him because he, uh, he played in Adrenaline Mob for a period of time after A.J. Pirro from Twisted Sister had passed because he was the drummer in that band. Uh, so uh, he introduced us to Mike Orlando and we recorded, Flathead recorded briefly in Mike's uh, studio, uh, uh, but then after that fizzled out and I started doing my own project, uh, Chad was producing that. So he's essentially just producing Ethan and myself at that point because we're writing all the music with him and he's... And we would go to his we would go to his his home in Pennsylvania for like an entire day. It would be a combination of he would do a lesson with my brother and then we would start working on material. Uh, and we'd be and I remember we would get there at like one in the afternoon because uh, uh, it was like a two and a half hour drive to get there. So we'd get there at one in the afternoon and we'd stay there probably till midnight um, and then get back home at three in the morning and I learned a lot working with him. He taught me so much, taught both of us so much. Um, And he produced um, the one album we released um, and Mike Orlando recorded it in his studio or or he, he engineered it in his studio and mixed it for us. Um, And that was the fastest I've ever recorded. Uh, My brother knocked out all the drum tracks in one day. Um, I knocked out all the guitars and bass, I think in like two or three days, uh, cause it's just me playing it. So it's just kind of like, boom, boom, boom. Okay. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. Let me add that click. Oh, punch me in there. Okay. Click boom. Like that. I just, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to waste any time when I went in there. Cause you know, the clock's ticking. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have, you don't have time to go in there and be like, how did I play that? No, 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 no. That doesn't happen. That does not happen. And you know this having a studio yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like it's get in there and get your stuff done. So, uh, and get it done fast. So, um, yeah, so I was doing that and I also sang on it too. In fact, I remember that was around the time I was doing your vocal arranging class and I was asking you for singing tips. Yeah. So I did that. Um, and then I formed, and then I formed a new lineup for that band with people at Berkeley and we played in and around a bit, but I was still, that was the, and it was coming to Berkeley when I started really learning how to book for myself because 
uh, when I was doing Flathead Sky, I did some of the booking, but I didn't do all of it. So it was kind of shared amongst all of us in our group. Um, but then when I come up to up to Boston, I'm kind of like, all right, I'm the one that formed this band. I got to figure this stuff out. And I learned, and that was how I learned <clears throat> when you form a band and you want to, and you're serious about it, one of the important things you got to do is you got to network. That means you got to go out to shows. You got to find out what's going on in the local scene. Meet everybody. See every band you possibly can. And um, I wasn't doing that as much at, when I formed when I formed Nuclear Apathy because again I was in the middle of figuring all this out. But after that band fizzled out, that was when I learned. Okay, I need to find. I need to get in touch with the local scene here. And I was already going to shows and stuff, but not as much as I should have been. Uh, and so I, and so and so once nuclear apathy stopped, um, I started writing a whole bunch of music um, instrumentally. I and this is around okay. And then nuclear apathy stopped around twenty. Was it last year? Yeah. Yeah. Early February last year. Um, and so around that point, like nearing my graduation, I start writing a whole bunch of instrumental music because I was singing in that band primarily. And, um, and I've always, well, no, not primarily. I was singing in that band and playing guitar and playing guitar. Yeah. yeah. But I'm, uh, I'm primarily a guitar player. And I think I forgot to mention that, Steve Vai is one of my all-time favorite guitarists. He's one of my biggest guitar heroes. Him, Satriani, um, Frank, obviously, um, <clears throat> Eric Johnson. I love, love, love instrumental guitar rock. And that is a huge, huge part of my playing. And I, rem I, I after Nuclear Apathy stops, I, I realize, you know, I never have tried the instrumental route before and I and you know there's a lot of Steve Vai in my uh, in like my phrasing like the way I phrase stuff I tend to pull from him just because he writes these phrases and melodies that you can sing back you know like the crying machine that's like a that's like a vocal line right there for the love of God that's like a vocal line uh, you know uh, Andy Timmons as well another guy who writes incredible melodies on the guitar that you can hear a singer singing that. So I was like, I listen to so much of this music, but I've never done it myself. Like, let me actually try this. And so I and started, you, said you were, you were influenced by Holdsworth too. So yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so I was kind of like, let me try the instrumental route here and let's just start pulling from all the different instrumental bands I love. So that was when I started, like, listen. that's when I went back to listening to, like, you know, I mean, I've always listened to Vi, but, like, that was when I, I, I was like, okay, let me go back to those records now again, and let's just start listening again to this. Uh, I started listening to Vi again and Satch and more. I don't want to say I started listening to, because I started listening to them when I was, like, 10, but you get what I mean. Yeah. 
uh, going back to it is the is the word I'm looking for. Um, and of course, I I was um, I'd been listening to contemporary artists as well, such as Chon, Polyphia, uh, Pliny, Intervals, people like that. Um, so I, 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 and I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm not writing vocal music now. I can try some of the stuff these guys are doing too. Um, <clears throat> you know, not, not like ripping off melodies or anything, but like these techniques, this type of phrasing, let me, let me try some of this. Um, and the first thing I wrote that is going to be on this record was the chorus to the song Frank scored a video game, which was my first single. And once I started, once I started working on this record, um, because like I really started actually working on it in November of last year, because around that summer I was doing a lot of uh, like theater work. I was doing a lot of different, a lot of theater work. Um, I was you know freelancing, doing musicals and stuff like that, and teaching as well. So like my schedule was really filled up with that. And then around November, I decided, okay, I'm actually going to make a record out of this. And this is now the next step in my career. This is, I'm, I'm going to do this. So started hammering away at <clears throat> writing all this stuff. I got a, I got a band together for it. So I wrote all the music, uh, demoed it all, recorded it all, and then called in guys I knew. I transcribed the whole thing uh, and and gave it to them and then started having rehearsals. And I had a whole bunch of dates in the spring booked and was about to start booking for the summer. And then what happens? The pandemic. <laughs> Indeed. So that was quite annoying. Uh, that being said, though, the pandemic, if there's anything good I can pull out of it. It was that I learned how to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. I learned about how live streaming works. I got a real handle on how do you get good audio to people that are watching on the other end live with, you know, not just talking, but like, how do you get my amplifier and tracks and whatever else to sound good? In fact, the first gig we had canceled we replaced it by doing a full band performance in my apartment here. And I remember like I hit the wrong button and <laughs> this is what made me really try to work on getting good audio live streaming. We started live streaming and then I was trying to route everything through my interface and I hit the wrong button and it went to <laughs> the laptop microphone. So it happens. It happens. And it was, again, it was my first time live streaming the entire band. So it's like, it's going to happen. Yeah. But then I learned over time, okay, how do I make this actually work? And figured it out. So I was, so I learned how like this kind of thing works here. And now what I'm doing is trying to see what other gigs are open. And by the time this airs, I will have announced the release date for the record. And it's going to be on November 6th. Friday, November 6th is when Primal Electric, my album, will be out. I've already released four singles for it. And, it's, I, and I put out two music videos also for it. And I'm really, really, really stoked to finally be releasing this album. You know, it's been an absolute labor of love. 
It's the music I'm the most proud of right now that I've done. And I've learned so much putting it together. And I've got and I've got so many plans for the next for the for the next batch of music that I start writing. The artwork was done by uh well the the, the photo that's on the front cover uh was taken by uh Carissa Johnson, who is a great photographer and great singer. Mm-hmm. Um and she's also been nominated by the by the BMAs, so make sure you vote for her. I'm really, really excited to finally have this album like to to finally have it out. I've been working on it for a year now and it's it's just I'm really excited. And the first time I actually got to play this music out in front of anybody was uh at NAM of last year. Because I had the first single, Frank Scored a Video Game, come out the week before NAM happened. Uh and I scheduled it to be that way because I I was performing at a booth with one of the uh, with one of the uh, pedal companies I'm with. So I was performing at their booth at NAM. So I scheduled the single to come out before that, and then I got to perform that at NAM along with the uh, with uh, another one of the singles, Amethyst, which hadn't even been heard by anybody yet at that point, except for the guys in my band. And so I got to perform that there, which was fantastic, and. I got to say not only have I learned so much about songwriting and stuff but like throughout this process I have learned a lot about all the different things that go into marketing and trying to promote an album a release trying to promote yourself as an entity finding out who your fan base is and you know and you know all about this stuff this is like th- this is the stuff I don't want to say that gets overlooked but the stuff that's not looked into enough and being a musician you are an entrepreneur and you've got to you've got you've got to treat what you do like a business even though it is a creative endeavor and it's artistic you, there's got to be a balance of both there's got to be that time when you are writing and you're exploring and you're taking in all these different things about harmony and all and all these really cool arranging ideas that you know I learned but I also learned that this is a business too and there's billions and billions of musicians out there doing the exact same thing that I'm doing what makes me stand out who is my fan base how do i market myself how do the people that listen to this kind of music consume it i mean you know the curriculum it's all that stuff yeah and it's it's been interesting learning it cuz it's kind of like i want to say flying by the seat of my pants cuz i'm i learned it while i was at school but now i'm applying it while i am doing it so you still learn more along the way while you're doing it too so much of the stuff i learned at berkeley i still use you know i i didn't just learn a lot about my craft at berkeley but i took in what a lot of you know my professors how they ex- how they would go about teaching and i tried to take in different elements of what how they taught into my own teaching mhm and so, you know, and I've taught before, but that was before I came to college. So, now I'm learning it fr- now I'm learning about music from real professionals that do this full-time for a living and have been doing it for for <clears throat> decades. So, pulling in their teaching style was really 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 useful. And again, one of the things that I learned from you and from a few other professors of mine is, you know, having that open dialogue it's not just sticking to a script. You have your points, 
And then you might go on a bit about something, you know, to have a discussion with the students about a thing. Now, it's a little different, obviously, talking with college students versus, you know, students who are, you know, 14 and younger, but that doesn't mean you can't have a dialogue with them. You know, even though I have students that are a lot younger and may not necessarily have decided they want to do music as a career, I will still tell them about how, you know, certain aspects about the business, you know, you know, like if they're doing a good job, I'll say to them, you guys are doing a good job. You know, let me let me tell you something about how production rehearsals work when you're working with like a gigantic artist or a better example would be like they have a week to learn a song or work or work on a section of a song. And I would I would say to them after they've done it, like, all right, good job, guys. You know, let me tell you something interesting. Sometimes if you're working with a huge artist, you might have 24 hours to learn a whole set list and then you got to fly and then you got to go and rehearse it with them and you got to get everything. And they're like, 24 hours to learn it. Yes. And that's when you drop everything you're doing. Literally, you drop everything you're doing. You learn the whole thing. You're listening on the plane. You don't sleep. You fly over there and then you show up. All right, let's do it. And I'll tell you the best example I had of that. I got to play guitar in an opera that was being debuted. This was a couple of years ago. And it was quite an experience. It had just been written. It was a 90-minute piece of music. It was very, very, very avant-garde. And I got emailed at midnight about 12 hours before the first rehearsal I had to show up to. 90-minute opera. I was given the music. They told me the dates that they were going to be doing it, the dates they were going to be rehearsing. And I got to thank John Finn for this one, my professor, because he was the one that gave my name to the guy because the guy contacted him first. And it was midnight when I got the email. I was about to go to sleep. And I was just like, oh, I guess I'm doing this now. Okay. And I was just like, all right, I'm not going to sleep now. I'm going to learn this thing now. And I was told that rehearsal was that day. And I was just, it was just kind of like, oh boy. All right. I better get on this now. And I did. And I remember, I, I think I canceled all my classes for that day. I cleared my work schedule. Yeah. And that was a very, and that was a very educational experience as well. You know, it was only, you know, cause you're, you're being thrown in. The orchestra has already been rehearsing, by the way, they'd already been rehearsing for a month. So not only do I have to do extensive catch up work, but I got to learn a whole thing now uh, on, but I did it. I learned so much. I got to perform at the Cutler Majestic, which was fun. That is a beautiful theater, by the way. Yeah. And yeah, and everybody was incredibly nice. That was also a huge lesson in scheduling as well, learning about how to budget your time. Yeah. Which basically my all of my free time was budgeted for only practicing. What kinds of things are you trying to do to market this new record? One of the things I'm doing right now is so I'm also very big into video editing as well. So I'm trying to put out a whole bunch of content, video content as well. So I recently, so like one, one of the big, one, in fact, one of the big productions I did was when all the venues started closing down, I did a huge, I think you may have seen this, uh, a giant, uh, what I called global jam. It was everybody play. It was me and like 20 other musicians doing Jeff Beck's lead boots. Um, to try and uh, raise awareness of all the uh, the venues that were closing down. And what I did was I, sh I had everybody film themselves in their own location. Uh, I gave them the song, told them what to do, uh, told them to take a solo here, play the whole song all the way through. And 
I got in, I got 20 different videos and that was when I got myself Premiere Pro and started to learn how to do the whole multi-screen thing and everything. Um, and was that, was that a huge project? Like if, if, if you've seen the video, you can probably tell how much, there were a lot of, um, working until 6am, uh, nights. Let's just say that. Um, it's a lot but, of work. Yeah. But I mean, that's what you do. But anyway, a number of things I'm doing are I'm trying to get back into uh, live streaming regularly doing that. Um, and how are you doing that? Are you doing a Facebook live or Instagram or are you do, do, using something different? I've done both. Uh, mainly what I was doing was uh, Facebook live. Um, I also, I did do an Instagram live once and that was when I had Tanya and Tia from uh, Storm, Storm Stress, the band they're doing now, uh, on there. We did it via Instagram, which was so much fun. Uh, they, th those two are awesome. They're really, really sweet, and they write really cool tunes. Yeah. They were your students as well, weren't they? I met them when they were in Flight of Fire, and they never took any classes with me. Ah. But I was playing in a band um, called Gambiza at the time, and we ended up doing some shows with them. And so that was one of those ah. where, like... We were on like a five band bill and instead of just playing my thing and leaving, I stuck around and I talked to every single band and you know, that's how I got to know them. It's funny you mentioned that. So talking about, you mentioned Gretchen before from the knockups, um, mm -hmm. the way I met her was my band was doing a live stream thing with, um, <clears throat> at Midway, um, vote, vote for Heather, by the way, uh, for the BMAs also, um, from Tiny Oak, um, we were doing a live stream thing there and the knockups were put on a bill with us. Now I'd never heard of them. Uh, so again, I'm hanging out and I'm talking with everybody and I meet Gretchen. I find out that she's a professor of liberal, liberal arts at, uh, Berkeley. I'm like, how have we never met before? <laughs> like, how did I not even bump into you at school? How did, what's going on here? Yeah. So, and we've been talking a lot and, you know, and hanging out, and 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 she introduced me actually to uh, Bradley J, mm. who I uh, I think you may have seen. I did a uh, he interviewed me last week. Yeah, um, really really cool guy, and um, and obviously a legend here too. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, and I met him through her, and 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 the way I'm trying to support bands now is watching whatever live streams they're doing, sharing them and all that kind of stuff, you know, tip them whenever you can, if yeah. they put the virtual tip jar out. But the way I'm trying to promote the album right now is do more live streams, post more and more and more content about it, whether, whether it's playthroughs of certain songs. One of the things I want to start doing is transcribing everything and then putting that out. Um, um, it's it's a lot of video content is the stuff I'm thinking about with promoting it and yeah. then just trying to grab more like live streams at venues that are doing it. Um, so it's it's things like that. Uh, promotional stuff through my website, which is maxborsguitar.com. I'm also in the process of uh, starting to design merch as well. So I'm going to start putting that out too. I don't want to say what it is right now, but I've got some cool stuff that I'm working on at the moment. Um and then eventually, right now, the thing is set to be a digital release, but there will be physical copies that I'm going to be doing as well. 
and I'll be doing some campaigning with that as well. So it's it's a lot of that it's a lot of that kind of stuff right now. But mainly the way to promote it since I can't play it out live right now is getting creative on the social media. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still learning right now. I've got stuff written down that I want to do obviously, but I'm still learning about it as well. Okay, so now what I always like to ask is gear. Yes. So here's my Ibanez Universe right here. This is one of the best guitars that I own. So this is a Steve Vai signature seven string. This is a uh, mid to late nineties model, I believe. This thing is absolutely beautiful. Um, stays in tune really, really nicely. Demarzio Blaze pickups, which I have to give a shout out to Demarzio. I'm a, I am a Demarzio artist. Uh, nice. Those guys make the best pickups in the world, hands down. Um, but yeah, I really like this guitar. It just, it just, it's just the clarity on this thing is unbelievable. Um, and I can't remember if the bodywood on this is alder or mahogany. It's, it's one of the two. This is my six string RG. It's just an, just another Ibanez, but it's got, um, the, uh, the DiMarzio liquefier and the crunch lab in it. Those are the John Petrucci signature pickups. Again, Ibanez Tremolo in this one, five-way switch. The other one has a five-way switch as well. Mm -hmm. uh, pull pot on here. Fender Mexican Strat right here. Nice. This one I got when I first discovered Jeff Beck. And I was just, I saw, I just started listening to all his records. And I saw the Ronnie Scott's video and I'm like, I need a Stratocaster. Gibson Les Paul right here. Sunburst. Took mm -hmm. the pickguard off of here. Um, these are the stock pickups right in here, but I'm thinking of putting of putting the um, Demarzio has a set of uh, PAFs that I'm thinking of throwing in here as well. Yeah, yeah. This one, uh, this is a 2002 model, I believe, and it's just it's just a stock Gibson, but it sounds it sounds fan it sounds fantastic. Only two pickups on this one. Um, regular hardtail bridge um and it just yeah it just it it sounds like a les paul so for all of us that absolutely love rush everyone's going to be really happy about this one da -da -da. so this is my double neck right here and i this was a this was a present for my grandparents when i got into berkeley i'm sad to say somebody else played stairway on it before i did <laughs> And I was just like, dude, come on. He's like, what? You didn't already? No. He's like, oh, sorry, man. And I'm like, leave my apartment now. <laughs> In fact, on my live stream, I was um, on my live stream. I pulled it out and played uh, Xanadu on it. And nice. it, it, it got that sound. It absolutely yeah. did. And, um, and then, of course, once I got this. I'm just tuning it now so I can show you how it sounds because it sounds really good. It's yeah. uh, it's Epiphone and it uh, when I when I first got it, that was you, I started doing that thing we all do when you get like a 12 string or some sort of specialty guitar. You start playing every single song that ever had 12 string on it that you never could before. Dead or Alive, Xanadu, Song Remains the Same, Give a Little Bit, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, and I have a couple acoustics as well. I have a Taylor 12 string and I have an Ovation 6 string. And I have a, uh, I have a Sterling JP70 over there. This, one. this was my first 7 string right here. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I got this one at uh, well, the Guitar Center on uh, on Boylston that all of us go to. Yeah. And um, yeah, this thing, yeah, this is a John Petrucci signature model, and this thing, uh, this thing just this only has a three way switch on it, uh, yeah. which is fine. Uh, but <clears throat> I use this one. Oh, I, I should have even mentioned. I should have mentioned uh, tunings before. So on the on the uh, the uh, on the Ibanez Seven, the tuning I have for that is a uh, drop A tuning, uh, <clears throat> and I use this one for all my other alternate uh, seven string tunings. So regular B standard or any variation on that drop, a, you know you know drop A flat, uh, B flat standard, whatever else. This is what I use for all the other alternate ones. Uh, so this is. So, yeah, so this is like kind of like my secondary seven string. The other one is my primary. And what we've got here is 74 SG. Oh, nice. This actually what um this is this actually is my uncle's, but it's kind of on permanent loan right now. Um and this right here is uh Dweezel's uh, signature. Oh, wow. Yeah. This was around the time I had met him or shortly after I had played with him. So this is my first bass, jazz bass. I got this when um, I was, there was a project I was supposed to be in, but that project never ended up doing anything. <clears throat> and they wanted me to play bass in it. So I was just kind of like, oh, well, I need a bass. So, and one of the songs we were planning on doing was Message in a Bottle. So immediately I'm like, okay, I got to get myself Sting's tone. Uh, but again, Sting doesn't play a jazz bass. So again, I was like 13. I didn't know what I was doing, but... Still, I got this bass, and I was just like, I really, really like the sound of this. And then this is my five string, a Sterling Sub Five. This is the one I used on the album. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I got this when I was doing Flathead Sky, and um, I needed to track bass for that record. So I just got this one, and I was going to go full Music Man, but I just didn't have the cash for it at the time. So I got this instead, and it still sounds immense. It sounds absolutely immense. The act, it, it plays beautifully. It's also active as well. It's got a very warm tone, but it's also very bright. And you, so like when you want to slap on it, it really just, it just pops out like that. And that's yeah. all the guitars. So now let's go to pedals and amp. Yeah, all right, so here's the pedal board. So here's what we got on here. So this is a Voodoo Lab PX8 Plus. And uh, shout out to the guys at Voodoo Lab. What's up, James Santiago? How you doing? So on here, I've got a number of different things. I don't have every pedal I own, but I've got a good chunk of them. Actually, I should say first, so the way this board works is it's a, it's a whole switching system. Every pedal is in its own individual loop, and you can make presets. So, the, yeah, so the way, yeah, so if you look under here, it's a whole spaghetti mess of stuff. So the way I've got it set up is this one right here gives me my rhythm tone. So that switches the amp over there, which I'll get into in a second, switches the amp to, um, switches the amp to one of the dirty channels. And what it, and what it does is it kicks on, it kicks on my amp tweaker pressurizer compressor. Shout out to the guys at amp tweaker and, uh, alpha distributions. Love those guys. And I, I am an amp tweaker artist. I should say that. Yeah, so that kicks on this compressor. This is one of the best, this is probably the best compressor. In fact, it is the best compressor I've ever used. It just makes the cleans just pop out really, 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 really nicely. Um, 
and then it also kicks on the Horizon Devices Precision Drive. This is uh, Horizon Devices is um, Misha from Periphery's um, pedal company. And so this is basically, it's sort of like a tube screamer, but for modern metal. So it has like a noise gate built into it, and it's got an attack, a volume, and a bright, and a drive knob on it too. So you can really tailor it uh, to, what, to, what, to whatever it is you're doing. And, and the regular tube screamer is great, but this works a little bit better for more contemporary type of stuff. Um, more contemporary types of stuff. Then the next one is just a clean sound. Uh, and that just engages the clean channel on my, uh, and that engages the clean channel on the amp. And one of the things I have wired into that loop in case I want to turn it on is my Strymon timeline delay. This is the best delay I have ever owned. This thing just does everything. And I mean everything. Like, you can get lost going through the parameters and all the different options. In fact, I did at one point trying to figure out what setting I wanted to use on one of my, the songs on the record. And after a bit, I'm just like, okay, I need to just record the thing now. Uh, <laughs> it's like, let's settle on a sound and just do this already. Uh, it's a good thing I recorded everything here in my apartment. The next preset is a broken up clean sound that also has some chorusing and some reverb and some delay on it as well. So if you want more of that like 80s kind of uh, broken up clean sound with like the with like chorusing and whatever else on it. So I've got a Boss Super Chorus right here. And over here I've got the TC Electronic Hall of Fame Reverb. Love this reverb unit. The setting I keep it on most of the time is the uh, mod one. Because it, it basically has like a modular effect whenever whenever you um, whenever you hit a note. Um I've also got the ISP decimator, which is an incredible noise gate. Like I, it just shuts the noise off, and I mean off. And and this board allows me to run certain things. I'm using the four cable method here, so I'm able to run certain things in the front and things in the effects loop. So in the effects loop, I have the um, in the effects loop, I've got. The noise gate actually, like that's what really shuts off all the noise. You put it in, you put it in to the amp itself, not just the preamp, you put it in the loop and it really just chokes down on all the noise you need. And I only use that for certain channels, like, you know, the, the dirty channel and whatever else. No need for that on the clean sound, obviously. Reverb's going in the loop, chorus is going in the loop. Uh, delays going in the loop, the typical things you, you'd expect to be in the loop. But I also have my volume going in the loop as well. And, you know, and so for people that may not, may not know why, the reason for that is if you put your volume pedal in the front of the amp, then what that does is that, what that does is that doesn't, it lowers the volume, but more so it just lowers your gain. And so it messes up your tone when you just want to go quiet. But if you literally just want to just lower the dB, you put this in the effects loop and it just lowers the volume. That's it. Doesn't mess with your gain, doesn't mess with anything. So that's what I really like about that. And Vox Wah right here, which is really nice. Um, I've also got the TC Electronic uh, Pipeline Tremolo. This pedal is a lot of fun. 
Um, I actually bought this, believe it or not, after I had recorded one of my songs. So the song Per Aspera, which is a single and has been out for a while, it has a hard like 16th note tremolo effect on it. Uh, you know, like a square wave tremolo. So you, you get that like that. And I didn't own a tremolo pedal at the time. So I just recorded the part and then just chopped it up manually in Pro Tools. And then, of course, I just I announced to the world on next week's live stream, I will be premiering this song and performing it for all of you. Thank you. Click. How am I going to do that? <laughs> yeah. Word for word. Exactly. I announced it. I'm just like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so I'm like, well. Sweetwater.com <laughs> and got myself that and it's it's great. It's yeah. really great. It does everything I need and more. The only thing that was difficult was getting used to stepping on it at exactly the right 16th note. And that's another thing for people that are getting used to playing live and with bands. If you do use pedals and stuff and you want to change sounds from section to section, that is a choreography that needs to be practiced. Like, I have met some people that didn't realize that, and I would explain to them, oh, it's, it's choreography. It really is. Like, as silly as that sounds, it's practiced, rehearsed moves. You know, your stage presence doesn't necessarily need to be rehearsed uh, or, or choreographed necessarily, unless the band you're in does that. Uh, but what does need to be choreographed is the actual switching of a sound to another sound within a song. So your amp. Yes, the amp. Yep. Let me move the microphone a bit. So what I've got here is Husen Kettner Grandmeister Deluxe 40. This thing has four channels on it, clean, crunch, lean, and ultra. It's also got a boost. Um, and what's cool about this is that like, Normally, you make, normally when you store presets, you store them on your pedal board. This amp stores presets as well, and it's a fully tubed amp. So what you can do is, let's say, so like let's say I'm making patches and I want to um, make a new rhythm tone. So now you'll notice, I don't know if you can see, but like whenever I hit these, lights are switching, yeah. So if I want to change the rhythm tone, what I do is I'll, um, I'll arrange the pedals however I want to arrange them. I'll put this thing in edit mode. And then on here, what I'll do is I'll just start tweaking knobs however I want to tweak them. And then what I'll do is this button right here says store. And then I'll hit that button and I'll hold it down and then it just stores where the knobs are. So even if you have to tweak them for like the room or whatever, Whenever you come back home and then you just hit this button again, it takes it back to where it originally was. Yeah, so it, and, and you can do that for however many uh, different uh, presets you want to make. Uh, it also allows you to turn the effects loop on and off, which that was the first time I ever had to deal with that. So there were a couple times when I hooked up my board and I'm like, Where's the delay? Why am I not getting... Oh, wait, I have to turn this on. Okay. <laughs> You're sitting there for like 20 minutes screaming at the thing, like saying words I'm not going to say right now. Uh, <laughs> like, where's the... And you're like, oh, you have to turn it on. Okay, that's a thing now. So I did that, which again, 
that's not anybody's fault. That's just my stupidity right there, not having done it before. Um, it also has a built-in noise gate, which is cool, though I tend to use the pedal one. Um, yeah, an effects loop in the back, and, um, and your, basic, your basic controls here. Um, gain, volume, bass, mid, treble, resonance, presence, master. But now here's another thing cool. There's also an effects access button on it. So it has built-in reverbs, delays, and choruses, and whatever else. And this volume knob over here doubles as not only a volume knob for the channel you're on, but if you hit effects access, it allows you to flip back and forth between chorus, flange, uh, tremolo, and chorus, flange, tremolo, and um, oh, and uh, and uh, delay too. Yeah, um, and then the other, and then the uh, the bass knob allows for you to. Uh, <clears throat> That that basically helps you change the beep the uh, the 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 number of milliseconds you want for each delay. So it says del delay delay time on it. It goes from fifty to fourteen hundred. Um, the mid knob doubles as the feedback knob for it, and the other one is uh, delay level. And that's and you know so your your normal oh and then there's a reverb knob too, but that's the same for both channels uh, or both modes. So. It so the fact that it doubles as that, because like let's say you need to go to a gig and you can't bring your board. Like let's say you're flying somewhere and you wanna and you either are and you wanna fly with this amp necessarily. Like you can only afford to bring a guitar and the amp and that's it. Uh, you can just program all that right then and there, and then just take it with you, and then you're good to go. So, cool. you know, yeah, and that's the, awesome. the yeah, and the tone is just mammoth on this thing. And that's just hearing it through the Redbox DI, you know. Yeah, when you and when you hear it through a cabinet, oh, it's just it 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 it, it knocks you on your head. So, I see you got a Mesa Mesa 4x12, yep. And of course, I've got the microphone space marked off. I did have to do that once because um so like I said, I'm not really recording with uh, microphones lately because of the apartment situation. However, um, I did a pedal demo for, um, uh, for uh, Thermion, the pedal company, because uh, they're also run by Alpha Distribution, who also does Amp Tweaker, so I know those guys. Uh, they asked me to do some pedal demos for them a while back, so I did one for the gasoline pedal, and I was just like, okay... Uh, I got to really mic up the amplifier for this one because that's, that's how people are, you know, the, the Redbox DI feature is only like, that only works for this amp. Not everybody's using this. So, so I'm, so I mic'd it up and was just praying, okay, let's hope nobody comes in and gets angry. I just, and, uh, and nothing happened. I think I had one person like bang on my floor once, but other than that, I was just like, I'm working here. <laughs> And then finally, uh, as far as like studio gear, because we, you and I both do engineering. So for streaming purposes, Harbinger, um, yeah, it's the LVL series. Uh, it's very simple for what I do. Four microphone inputs, 
So for XLR inputs, for line inputs, you've got your quarter inch inputs for hooking up an iPod or whatever else. Your RCA inputs are right here. Then very simple, EQ, aux, pan, volume, uh, level, all that good stuff. Uh, it gets the job done for my simple setup up here. Uh, so that's that. Then Scarlet 18i20 interface. That's what everything's running through right now. Um, right now I'm using BX5 M Audio monitors sitting on a RLX phone. Uh, I use Pro Tools for recording. Tell me, you know, when the record's going to drop and, you know, maybe where to find it and stuff. The record is going to be out November 6th. And it'll be out everywhere. It'll be on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Music, all that good stuff. It'll be available everywhere. And physical releases are going to be uh, announced separately. And I will be making an announcement about that when they're ready. But right now, the digital releases are all going to be out that day. Are you planning to do like any kind of like virtual CD release show or anything like that? I am going to be doing a live stream show the day after on the 7th of November. It will be done. Uh, the location uh, has not been disclosed yet, but there will be a live stream performance that you'll be able to watch on my Facebook channel, uh, fa uh, Facebook page. And that will be on the 7th, that day. Um, I was going to ask about, because um, I don't think I ever knew that you went to Manhattan School of Music. Yes, I did, actually. Yeah, I was. <clears throat> I went there for pre-college for four years, and then I went there for college for two years. Um, and then after the two years, I kind of felt like the conservatory thing wasn't really for me. Uh and what but were you did, majoring in there? Was that performance or? Yeah, it was classical guitar performance. Um, and it was studying with Mark Del Priora there, like throughout pre-college and <clears throat> the two years of college I did there. Um, it was a, I learned so much from him. He's one of the best teachers I've ever had. Um, he, you know, he really, you know, he helped me to really understand the genre, really understand the vocabulary and and just to be able to translate and understand how to produce tone how to really produce tone only using your hands because that's the thing with classical guitar you know we don't i love all this gear and it's wonderful and i'm gonna keep buying more of it obviously but what i love about classical guitar is all it comes down to is how do you touch the instrument how do you touch the string there's how do you hold it? There is so much that goes into tone just with these. Tone is in the hands 100% no matter what style you play. I've gotten to play through Dweezil Zappa's rig. I don't sound like him. Yeah. <laughs> I sound like me. Yeah. I've played through... Have I played through Vi's rig? I did on a clean channel once, but... Yeah, still though, because I got to open for him years ago. Yeah, no, the, the tone is definitely, definitely in the fingers, no matter what, no matter what you're going through. But yeah, yeah, I did that. I was studying classical guitar performance a lot. <clears throat> well, I mean, that's what I was studying. I also learned like classical history, um, what we call at Berkeley tonal harmony. That was the that was the music. That was the harmony there, um, which is which was cool because. But I also learned how just like 
theory in general works and how triads work and the, you know, what, what all the different interval names and scales are. So having that background when I came to Berkeley definitely helped because I wasn't completely like, I wasn't completely in the woods when uh, it came time for my, for my harmony classes. You know, I came in there understanding, like I tested into harmony too, like when I got in. Um, and so it was, it was, and then when it came to tonal harmony, after all of that, it was like, I hadn't done it for years, but it was all familiar territory. Yeah. The difference though, is that tonal harmony at Berkeley doesn't go as in depth with it as MSM did because MSM, they teach you about box style chorales and then writing motets and whatever, but then they go further into like 20th, 20th century serialism and they're teaching you how to compose in the style of Schoenberg, Ligeti, and all that other stuff, which was pretty interesting. And I actually did get to tap into some of that on this record. One of the tracks on there actually has like an avant-garde section in the middle. So just for those of you that are really into that stuff, this section that section might be for you. You'll see where it is. Well, Max, it's been great talking to you. You too. Thank you for having me. that's it for this episode don't forget to subscribe to the fringe collective podcast give us a rating on itunes follow us on facebook at facebook.com slash fringe collective thanks again and see you next time